electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. And hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead. Market milestone. It's been six months since stocks hit their nadir in March, and it's been almost a straight shot higher since then. Will we keep going or are we headed back down again? We will definitely ask. Plus, deregulation nation. NEC Director Larry Kudlow says the new Supreme Court makeup would most likely be lighter on regulation. Many on Wall Street agree. And we'll look at some key areas in particular that could benefit. And the Tesla tussle, a prescription play. Nike did it. And the Cleveland Cavaliers CEO joins us to talk hoops. Nuggets with a nice win last night, uh, Dom. We begin with the markets, though. Mr. Chu is here with those numbers. We can all tell that Kelly loves the return of live sports, and for good reason, because we all do. We all like to see that news and sports, obviously things that we want to watch live. And markets live right now are in the red, but not by a lot. The S&P off by just about one half of 1%. One quarter of 1% declines for the Dow, and the Nasdaq continuing that volatility we've seen as of late. It's volatile to the upside and to the downside, like we've seen today, off by about 1%. As we dig further into that trade within the NASDAQ and elsewhere within technology and communication services, check out this particular ETF that tracks many of the biggest Internet names out there. We're talking about Amazons, Netflixes, Facebooks, make up the biggest holdings here. We did see a dip intraday on some of those for this particular ETF, indicating the underlying holdings were showing some weakness. But again, a bit of a pop here. We'll see if that sticks around as it heads towards the flat line. And we mentioned some of those big stocks, Apple's, Facebook's, Amazon's, Netflix, Alphabet, the parent company of Google. We'll check out Facebook, Apple and Amazon on a year to date basis. No doubt. Look at that run. Sixty five percent for Amazon, 50 percent for Apple and 25 percent for Facebook. But as of late, these particular moves that we've seen to the downside have now been pretty dramatic. Anywhere from 14, Kelly, to 20 percent. So as we take a look at those trades, that's what I'll be watching for this afternoon session. Are those still in the shopping list? And I know that you want to do some drawing as well. Right I do. Now. We're going to take so over for you. I'm going to move this way to socially distance <laughs> myself, and I'll leave it to you. Dom, thank you very you much. And yeah, we're going to pick up exactly where he left off and talk about this market milestone that I mentioned. It's been exactly six months since those lows right here back in March. And it's been a pretty classic V-shaped recovery ever since, as you can see. The S&P and the NASDAQ were back to new record highs by early September. But ever since, like Dom was just outlining, we're starting to slide back down again. The big question on everybody's mind is whether this is a garden variety pullback or a V that's turning into a W. For some answers here, let's bring in Simeon Hyman of ProShares Investments and Elia Hernandez of GenTrust. It's great to have you guys both here. Simeon, I'll start with you. I will restate the question. Is it just a garden variety pullback or something more? Yeah, I, I think we're looking at a jagger line with, with general upward trajectory, not a W. I mean, the concerns of September are pretty clear. First, we have that stalemate with regards to additional stimulus, and we have a heightened level of political challenges. Uh, you, if you look at what's happened historically, if there is a clean sweep of either Democrats or Republicans, that's probably the thing that's going to give some pause to the market because – 
businesses may just sort of take a pause and say, well, this is a clean sweep. Let's see what they're going to do. Let's not do anything for a few months. So those are concerns that have been weighing. But still, ISM manufacturing, services, employment coming back a little quicker. I don't say W. I say jagged line upwards to the right. Okay, so sort of a sawtooth, uh, but but that the uptrend remains intact. Elena, how would you characterize it? And what what do you think the biggest concern is? I, I mean, it seems obvious to me that it would be the spread of COVID, people kind of, you know, putting a halt to any of the economic activity that they've been engaged in and throughout the winter just saying, you know what, better safe than sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Kelly, that is one of the main concerns. We do not think we're in a V-shaped recovery by no means, right? We have seen some recovery of, of the corporate earnings, but those have mostly been because of cutting in expenses. And as we know, an economy cannot cost cut its way to prosperity, right? So as you mentioned, there's this, we, we have a lot of risks coming through in the next couple of months that bring a lot of uncertainty to the path forward. One of them, like you mentioned, what's going to happen with COVID? We've seen some resurgence. Um, how is that going to look in the winter months when we all have to be inside? And not only in the fear factor that it might bring to um, consumers, but also are we going to see some partial measures of lockdowns, et cetera, a la what we're seeing in UK and Europe. We have um, also the uncertainty of what are we going to get from the fiscal stimulus? Are we going to get something, right, to help support um, consumers, businesses, et cetera, to be able to kind of pass through this really challenging time? And then added to all this, we also have um, the uncertainty of the elections, right? If we look at uh, the volatility markets there, expecting, you know, vol to be around 15% higher mm -hmm. through like November, December. Um, so telling us that they expect the markets to have high volatility, not only for election date, but also, you know, a month or so after. And then U.S.-China tensions have increased with TikTok, uh, ByteDance uh, issues. Yeah. And that also puts a lot of uncertainty in the path of, you know, how would our global corporate business environment look um, and how could this, you know, help or um, hurt? the global recovery. Yeah, and I'm looking here, I mean, you guys basically are saying, you know, look at uh, investments you think would do well during the next crisis. So inflation-linked bonds, gold, mm -hmm. things like that. Simeon, I'll ask you as well, I mean, if you're more constructive on the recovery, then are you using these sell-offs as an entry point? Um, or are you concerned that, for example, big tech, we've seen some of the biggest pullbacks that still have two high valuations? You know, if you just think about this in the most oversimplified way, if you kind of went to sleep last January, you wake up next January, and let's just say the world, or maybe it's six months later, whenever you wake up, the world is totally returned to normal. So you'd expect in that environment, stocks kind of went sideways, but they're sort of where they were when they started. And, and we're sort of flattish right now. But to your point, that's not what the market looks like across the board. And it's well, it, for, for many of us, it's clear that tech just looks a little expensive. The question is where to rotate. Mm-hmm. In a sawtooth-looking recovery, it perhaps is just not enough to make that rotation to value. That really needs kind of that straight-line, unambiguous, linear thing. Hmm. So we think there are opportunities here, but to rotate more towards quality, strong balance sheets, consistent cash flow, growing dividends, things that will do well in a sawtooth, cheaper than tech, but not quite a value trap, if you will. All right, so splitting the difference and finding quality. We'll leave it there. Thank you both very, very much, Simeon and Elena, this morning talking us through these markets. Just have a news alert coming out of the bond market where the five-year notes went up for auction. How'd it go, Rick Santelli?
It went really well. An A- is the grade for demand. It's straight up one Eastern. Kelly, 53 billion five years. First of all, it's a record size. The yield, 0.275, also a record low yield for an auction. The previous low yield was 0.288 from July. And all the metrics were above average, and it priced well below where the one issued market was trading. So all green lights, A minus, and it really goes a long way to say, why would anybody lend their money to Uncle Sam for 0.275 for five years? Well, probably because they listen to the UK and other central banks discussing negative rates, nervousness in equities. There's a lot of reasons. And the package in total is $155 billion when we finish up with sevens tomorrow. Also a record size for twos, fives, and sevens. Wow. Back to you. It's impressive demand is that strong. Rick, I want to ask you about all the Fed speak over the past 24 hours. Um, from everything that we heard from Charles Evans yesterday that caused some jitters in the market about raising rates before 2%, but then he kind of uh, clarified those comments today. You have Fed Chair Powell today on Capitol Hill saying that, I, I'm paraphrasing, but we've done everything we can do to support the recovery. And, and that also caused some concern amongst people who said, well, wait a minute, does that mean they're out of tools? What, what do you think is the most important message for investors from uh, what the Fed is trying to say here? That the Fed has gone overboard, like many central banks, in my opinion, to provide all the stabilization that they can from the fact that they can lend, but they can't spend. I think it goes a long way to also uh, contrast politics to this. You know, normally uh, central bankers, especially our Fed, kind of stay away from politics. They're kind of jumping in. They say we need more fiscal help. But at the end of the day, I think investors should be cognizant of the fact that the Fed is friendly to the marketplace, if anything, overly friendly. Yeah, that's true. If you look at the track record, they're trying. They just don't always get it right, I guess. Uh, Rick, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Rick Santelli today. Let's turn to shares of Johnson & Johnson higher as the company says it's moved to phase three now of its COVID vaccine trial. Meg Terrell is here with those details. Meg? Hey, Kelly. So they've dosed the first participants in this trial after what they say was positive results from an earlier study. And we should see those anytime over the next day or two. This is going to be a massive trial. 60,000 participants across three different continents starting at age 18. J&J says it wants in particular to focus on diversity in enrollment in the trial and also uh, a large representation of people over the age of 60. Now, what differentiates this vaccine from the other three that have already started phase three trials is that they are testing it in just a single dose. The others from Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca are testing two-dose regimens. Now, J&J says if all goes well, they could seek an emergency use authorization in early 2021 when they would have the first batches available. The company has said it aims to have a billion doses in 2021. But of course, as with all of the other companies, it's going to be slow going to get up to uh, enough supply for everyone. Now, the president today tweeting about uh, J&J's trial starting and telling the FDA it must move quickly. We talked with J&J's chief scientific officer this morning about that tweet and whether he's feeling any pressure. And if he has confidence, the regulators will take their time on these vaccines. Here's what he said. I'm very confident in the regulators worldwide that they will uh, that will that they first want to see good data before they will approve. But we also have our own principles. We are developing medicines and vaccines for more than 60, 70 years. And we always stay to our own principles of making sure that the benefit risk has to be very well established before we bring a, a vaccine or a, or a medicine to, uh, to patients. 
But of course, Kelly, the constant tweeting and talking about Election Day from the president, tying that to a vaccine, making a lot of people nervous about the vaccine speed, which we're, of course, seeing in our change research CNBC polling today. Back over to you. Meg, to that point, um, what's the latest with the AstraZeneca trial that saw those side effects and have similar side effects been reported in any of these others? Such an important question. So that AstraZeneca trial has restarted around the world, except in the United States. We are waiting to hear from the FDA on whether they will be able to restart here and when. Uh, they say that the regulators in the UK, for example, have said it is safe to begin again, but we don't have more details about it. Now, Johnson & Johnson has a similar technology, not an identical technology, um, but they say they have not seen any of these kinds of safety events in their trials, and they've tested this in 100,000 people because they've tested wow. it in different diseases as well. So they have a big safety database. That's very encouraging. I, I hope that remains the case. Meg, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Meg Terrell with the latest. Still ahead, deregulation nation. Could a new justice on the Supreme Court lead to less regulation for corporate America? And if so, who could benefit the most? Plus, the work from home trend has left many office buildings empty, and that could be the case for years to come. We've got new details. And the Tesla tussle, a look at the big divide on Wall Street over this stock today, down 7% after Battery Day. We're back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. More Republicans are lining up to support the president's decision to nominate a judge to the Supreme Court ahead of the election. The talk on Wall Street and in the Beltway is that changes to the makeup of the court could lead to a deregulatory stance. Here's National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow yesterday. I'm going to assume that the nominee, whoever he or she may be, uh, will continue a lighter touch on regulation. It doesn't mean no regulation, it just means a lighter touch, maybe more sensitivity uh, to business jobs in the economy. And today we're getting news of proposed changes to Section 230 aimed at holding online platforms more accountable for their content. So how does that fit into the regulatory framework that could be ahead for the Internet in particular? Joining me now is Blair Levin, uh, the policy analyst at New Street Research. Blair, it's good to have you. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Doesn't Section 230 highlight the tension here because the president is kind of cracking down, kind of kind of moving forward on, on regulation, it would seem, on, in that arena, even while uh, with many other parts of the economy, he has more of a deregulatory focus. Is that right? Um, yes, in a way. If you take the president and the DOJ seriously as a matter of law, it absolutely is a tension. Um, and in, in particular, uh, it's attention with what they've said to the FCC. What they've said to the FCC is you have authority here. And now what they're saying to Congress is actually Congress needs to fix this. But what I really think about 230 is that what the president is doing is about a political narrative. Hmm. It gives him a platform to continually talk about how conservatives are being censored, even though there's certainly no evidence that that's really true. There's some anecdotes. Um, and in fact, if you look at Facebook, most of the most popular stories are from conservative media. Uh, so it's really more about political narrative. But the larger point is exactly right. The DOJ, for example, is about to 
uh, apparently file a lawsuit against Google, but that lawsuit will be very much at tension with what a Republican majority court did in terms of antitrust hmm. uh, in the American Express case. And I expect that the, uh, the whoever Trump nominates would have agreed with that majority. Uh, so there's a lot of different tension. So that's fascinating. Let's start with just the Supreme Court piece of this, though, because arguably that is set for a generation here um, if a conservative fills the seat. What would we see in terms of what that court would mean for the Internet, uh, for some of the kind of telecoms areas that you focus on? Yeah, well, I think there are a couple of different elements. The first element is the question of whether uh, state and local governments will continue to have any authority over the Internet. This is actually a very difficult question. Uh, the Interstate Commerce Clause was written at a time when uh, a lot of commerce, most commerce, was actually within a state. Uh, and over time, we've adjusted as uh, commerce has changed. And the states and the federal government have shared a lot of different uh, jurisdiction, even though arguably certain things are a function of interstate commerce. But the Internet is a whole new ballgame. And so you have different litigation on issues like privacy and net neutrality, testing the limits of state and local governments. I expect a conservative majority in the Supreme Court would essentially shut out state and local regulation, but it doesn't stop there. There are also uh, uh, a couple of different cases, including the so-called Chevron case, mm -hmm. uh, which gives deference to federal agencies. And then there's also the so-called delegation doctrine, which says that Congress can delegate to agencies uh, the, the actual technical task of figuring out how to achieve the, the ends that Congress has right. mandated. And, it, it, so you could, and, and, and what the court could do is reverse both Chevron and the delegation doctrine and essentially eliminate regulatory power uh, from the agencies. So you both get rid of the state, local governments, and you get rid of federal agency authority. That leads to a very uh, judicially mandated deregulation. And it's fascinating. So in that void, what would you expect? You know, which companies might benefit the most? I don't know if there's any that would um, suffer as a result of this, but what do you think that impact could look like? Well, it, you know, it depends on how you look at the world, but uh, certainly there are some smaller companies that might have problems. Um, you, there are certainly consumers would say they might have some problems. Traditionally, regulation is done uh, at least essentially to benefit consumers. Um, but I, I think it would, if you would look at uh, the, the carriers would benefit, the data platforms would benefit, uh, but basically the larger companies, I, I think, in many ways would benefit. Um, but, it, you know, it depends on how they do it. It's difficult for me to see how it, this holds up as kind of a, uni uh, a, a holistic theory of regulation. But the bigger point that I would make, I, I was listening to a panel yesterday with some healthcare experts mm -hmm. who said, unanimously, and they're from different points of view, if you get rid of Obamacare in the Supreme Court, what you'll end up with, with is Medicare for all. And I think that's an interesting lesson. Hmm. If you get rid of all telecom regulation, you are going to have some kind of reaction. I, for example, I think it might inspire a lot of local governments to say, we need to build our own networks. If we can't be guaranteed right. that the networks that serve our consumers abide by, for example, net neutrality principles, we'll build our own. I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying that's the kind of thing that can happen. It's fascinating. I, I, I Like you said, this feels like where the, the real change is going to happen, even as we're watching the presidential election, which has a very different feel to it. Blair, thank you right. so much today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good Blair Levin of New Street Research.
Still ahead, another day and another hot IPO. GoodRx is soaring after pricing above expectations. It's up 45% right now, but will it be a good investment? Plus, as the stock hits an all-time high, Pinterest is going where it's never gone before, into the world of short videos. We've got the details and what that could mean for the bottom line. Stay with us. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome back to The Exchange. And here's a check on markets as we approach half past the hour. We're kind of back and forth between gains and losses. And right now we're in the red. So the Dow has been up and down about 150 points today, but it's down 65 or a quarter percent right now. And we're back to seeing the Nasdaq as the underperformer. So this is a different tape than we've seen so far this week. The S&P is down half a percent to 3296 and the Nasdaq is down one percent. It's under 11,000 right now. The sectors behind me reiterate that we see healthcare and industrials leading the way, although with fractional gains. Everybody else is lower. The weakest are uh, real estate today, technology and energy as well, which has been such a laggard, down 1.8 percent. Let's talk about some of the individual movers this hour. And we're going to start with Twitter, which is at the highest level in over a year after getting an upgrade to buy today at Pivotal Research. Interesting upgrade because the firm is hoping for a subscription service from the company. Twitter shares are up almost 10 percent today, a 9 percent gain to about 46 and change. KB Home is moving lower, even though they had better than expected results and gave a bright outlook, saying they see sustained demand ahead. The housing market, of course, has been a bright spot, but shares are taking the profit to the tune of 4 percent today. And Stitch Fix is sinking after posting a wider than expected loss. Despite adding clients and growing sales, a tough session here as investors rethink the valuation. Stitch Fix is down 16%. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Sue? Thanks so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. A still developing story, actually a breaking story. We thought we were moments away from a decision on whether charges would be filed against the Louisville police officers involved in the fatal shooting of Breonna Taylor. Right now, we have the grand jury indicting one of those officers on criminal charges six months after Ms. Taylor was fatally shot by police. So it's one officer. There were three officers facing charges. We're going to wait and see exactly what the charge is. So stay with us. We'll have breaking news on that in just a moment. The mayor has ordered a curfew beginning at 9 p.m. tonight. Police in Minsk are using water cannons and beginning to arrest protesters who took to the streets after Alexander Lukashenko was sworn in for his sixth term as president. It was a secret ceremony held earlier in the day. Mass protests have gripped Belarus since the August election, the official outcome of which has been called fraudulent by the opposition. And Amazon said it did not collaborate with Echelon on the $500 fitness machine named Prime Bike. The e-commerce giant has removed the product from its website. It's asking the fitness company to stop selling it. 
For more on the X-Prime bike, I guess you could call it, you can head to CNBC.com. You're up to date, Kelly. I'll be back in just a few minutes with breaking news out of Louisville, Kentucky. Back to you. Yeah, Sue, that'd be great. Thank you so much, Sue Herrera. Let's get a check on real estate right now. The sector riding a four-week losing streak and on pace for its worst month since March when it tumbled 15 percent. Meanwhile, a new study by commercial real estate firm Cushman and Wakefield says global office vacancies won't get back to pre-pandemic levels until 2025. For more on the path forward for the industry, I'm joined by Kevin Thorpe. He's the chief economist at Cushman and Wakefield. Kevin, it's good to have you. And um, is this your, you guys have gone, kind of gone through a few different scenarios. Um, is this a scenario in which there's government support for the sector or not? Yeah, so first, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of concern, and I think the way you led into this is, is right. There's a lot of concern about the future of office. And so we talked to uh, some of the largest companies around the world, and we know that this work-from-home trend is very real. And so what we did is we set out in this study that we published today to try to understand what would be the net impact on the office sector over the next 10 years. And so we, we studied the cyclical impacts. Uh, you know, the COVID-19 recession will create significant office using job losses, the structural impacts of assuming a higher uh, increase in work from home. And we did think about policy uh, aspects to this. And really, there were two key findings, if I could. The, the first key finding is office leasing fundamentals will be significantly impacted by this event. There's no question about it. Many businesses are reducing their footprint. So we have actually have vacancy going to an all-time high. But the second key finding is, is interesting. We didn't expect to see it, is that office does, in fact, fully recover. Hmm. Um, so it's largely due to employment growth, office using employment growth. Well, that, so it does fully recover. Uh, but in the meantime, it looks very different. So you think we're still going to have 50% more office space per person, right? Yeah, so that's exactly right. So the work from home trend is is here, and it's at, and what we assume is that that will increase. So permanent work from home will double, really, uh, due to this event. And agile workers, which we assume to be people who work from home some of the time, in the office some of the time, also increases. But over time, the growth from office as the economy shifts to this knowledge based professional services economy, that growth offsets this work from home impact over the aggregate. But in the near term, absolutely uh, uh, significant challenges for the office sector. Uh, Kevin, we appreciate it very much. People can, of course, go find out more about it. There's a lot of great data in here. Uh, so some good news, some bad news, uh, you could say, depending maybe on where you're located for the office industry. Kevin Thorpe, thank you so much, sir. Okay, great. Thanks for having me. The chief economist at Cushman and Wakefield. The street's latest Tesla bull bear debate. Nike just did it in the first quarter and the biggest SPAC deal ever. That and more ahead in today's edition of Rapid Fire. We're back in two. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that need to be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, we welcome Julia Borston, Dominic Chu, and Leslie Picker. And first up, we're talking some Tesla. Big battery day yesterday. Failed to electrify investors. Shares slipping as much as 9% today. But the jury is still out for the analysts. There's a big split, a big debate today. Baird naming Tesla a bearish initiation, a fresh pick, citing a lack of upcoming catalysts. Okay, fine. But Deutsche Bank is upgrading the stock to a buy after yesterday. Just to put these views in perspective, one of the lowest price targets on Tesla on the street is $58 at RBC. Piper Sandler, Dom, is up at 515 <laughs> 
I'm, I'm laughing because if you take a look at the, there's a reason why we often talk about Tesla. There's a reason why the news loves them, because they're a lightning rod of a company, not just because of the CEO, Elon Musk and the founder, Elon Musk, but because there are so many different divergent views on this particular company. What I find curious about this whole situation is when you talk about the bull and the bear case, it's, they're talking about the exact same things. They're just predicting completely different outcomes for them. The valuations of this company alone have people saying, hey, I don't even know how you can invest in this. However, I would point out that if you take a look at the way that this stock has traded over the course of the past two to three years at this stage, there has been a huge amount of skepticism on the stock. Back then, that skepticism didn't translate into the valuations we're seeing now. And maybe the valuations are finally starting to catch up. And that's the reason why you're seeing so much more chatter around this. Yeah. I would also point out the analysts don't often get it right anyway, right? So <laughs> Yes. In this case, the dispersion just reflects that. Julia, I want to come to you on a headline we're just getting out of Gavin Newsom. He has signed uh, an executive order banning the sale of new gasoline-powered vehicles in your state starting in 2035. Now, you could say it's a response to the wildfires and to the panic everybody seems to be feeling about the environment out there. Um, but this is a state that also Elon Musk has threatened, who is making the leading EV right now, is, has threatened to leave. Um, so an interesting, a very dramatic move here. Again, it would only apply to new cars. Um, but certainly, I mean, this is the biggest car market. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have wide ranging impacts. Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting, Kelly, is you know, that is 15 years away. But if you think about how long these cars are in development, that will, you know, not be too long before these car makers have to really think about what it's going it's gonna to take to comply with that. Now, I used to have a, a electric car. And one reason why I gave it up was because I had a limit of 80 miles of how far I could go without a charge. Now, I love that car. It was small and zippy. And I love <laughs> not having to get gas. But long term, I just can't stick with something that has an 80 mile maximum. So it'll be really interesting to see how these uh, car makers adapt. And I do think it's worth pointing out something that Elon Musk said. He said that in 2023, we are confident we can make a very compelling $25,000 electric vehicle that is also fully autonomous. I think that's notable because that would be kind of crazy to have a fully autonomous yeah. uh, car for $25,000 $25, in just three years. But also that really points to the issue of price and the fact that electric cars still tend to be significantly more expensive. And that's one reason why adoption has, has not been able to catch up with yeah, well, sort of the, your, the government interest. There. Your range anxiety is exactly what the company's trying to address with these million mile batteries and so much more. We'll move along. But uh, man, it's been a busy news day today. And <laughs> Tesla shares are still down despite that major announcement from the state of California. We'll talk about some Pinterest. They have a new feature called Story Pins that launches today. They're just the latest social media platform to introduce a short video function for content creators. Unlike Snap and Instagram stories, these are forever. Uh, and shares of Pinterest are popping on this move today. Leslie, they're up 2.5%. The stock is up 300% off its 52-week low. I mean, I, I could see the appeal. But it's not, not a huge reaction in the shares. The market, you know, they hear stories. They hear, you know, short-term videos. They think TikTok. They think Instagram. They think of areas that have uh, caught fire pretty quickly uh, from a consumer base that are looking to, uh, you know, utilize video to share their stories. Uh, this one seems to be doing something a little bit different. As you mentioned, they're available forever. Uh, right now, uh, they're going to be at least 
from the onset available on an invitation-only basis, mm. uh, which kind of fits into Pinterest's model of, of really being a little bit more hands-on about the types of content that's on its platform. So we'll see if they can do something different, if there's still a, a willing and interested yeah. uh, pair of eyeballs or, or enough eyeballs to really pay attention to this. I mean, Julia, this hardly to me seems like a TikTok killer. It seems like an obvious next move if I'm going to stare at Pinterest looking for food recipes for my one-year-old or whatever. I, I mean, they might as well be video form. Yeah, I think this is really not about being a TikTok killer, though it is worth, worth pointing out that TikTok has had encouraged some of its users um, to post more sort of Pinterest-type topics, things such as recipes and crafts. But I think what we are really seeing here with Pinterest is wanting to give creators more tools to engage with their fans. More engagement means um, people are going to stick around longer and be able to see more advertising. Now, I think it's also crucial to point out something that Leslie just mentioned is that they're starting out just with approved creators. They don't want everyone posting their videos like TikTok does. They really want someone who's going to be sharing a travel itinerary or teaching how to make a recipe or do a craft at home to give them, those people more tools to, to make it more engaging and keep people using Pinterest longer yeah. every day. I, I appreciate that they're going to curate things, but sometimes the magic is also in like, you know, hey, I might be a great video, you know, content creator. They don't know. They, they got to, I wouldn't be. Uh, anyway, let's <laughs> move on and talk about GoodRx. It's another good first uh, IPO day here. This time, the pharmacy startup you may know from all of its commercials is debuting on the NASDAQ, pricing well above the range at 33 and then still popping 45% from there. Much like the recent spate of software IPOs, although this isn't quite the same animal, um, the stock, Leslie, is performing really well. Um, what does this say to you? I mean, what is the appeal of a good RX? Or is this, this just has to tell us that the IPO market is hot almost no matter what company is in, the, is in the mix? I think this story has a benefit from the fact that it fits into two really big themes that investors are focused on right now. Uh, their pitch to investors are we strive to make healthcare more affordable. Who doesn't want that? Uh, and then also we do things digitally. Uh, in this current environment, those are two big themes that investors want to see and see, see a benefit for. Oh, and not to mention, GoodRx is actually profitable. So while we do see a huge spate of companies down, coming down the pipeline that are, that are tech companies, we get kind of used to seeing you know, unprofitable companies. This is one that actually is making wow. money. Uh, so that helps it stand out as well. Dom, it's also, I, I'm kind of curious about what good RX is. I've wondered this ever since I've watched these commercials. I'm, I don't know if I'm the only one, but I see these commercials all the time. Like if you watch sports, you cannot escape good RX commercials. But they're not an insurance company. So they show this, this app where it says, yeah, your $60 you know, asthma inhaler is $8.90. But how does that work? Aggregator, right? They, they, they take the data. They, they kind of figure out where exactly you can kind of get these volume discounts from, and they do it. And, and, and so you're talking about a business model that is perhaps just like those other ones you see commercials for where people kind of take and, and allow you to figure out which car insurance is the cheapest for you or where you can find the best deals on certain other types of products, travel, airfare. Those algorithms are all kind of key there. What I thought was kind of curious about this whole IPO process was that it was actually an IPO process, right? It wasn't a SPAC. <laughs> it was so refreshing to me to kind of go through and follow the GoodRx 
IPO process and say, hey, it's not a special purpose acquisition company that's doing this. These guys actually have a company, a product. They pitched it to investors, went on a traditional roadshow and actually got a pricing range and did it as their own business, yep. not just merging with somebody else. And there is still room for that kind of business and, in this kind of environment. And they're profitable. I mean, they could have done anything. The world is their oyster. All right. Thank you, guys. Let's talk about some Nike because the shares today are having their best day pretty much ever after reporting a blowout quarter. They beat earnings estimates by nearly double digits. They saw online sales. This was the big headline, boom by 82 percent, and a move that digital business is really paying off. The shares hit an all-time intraday high. Uh, This is a strong reversal after they had a huge slump in the previous quarter, the one most affected by the COVID lockdowns. But let's see, we've got about a 9% gain, I think, going right now, Dom. But this, was, this is a stock that rarely moves ever as much as it did today when I think it originally popped about 15%. I remember I, when, when I was kind of watching the headlines come out yesterday, I kept thinking to myself, you know, there was a time when we were covering this company that we used to always look at the futures orders, remember, by region, and that was going to be a big tell. These days, it's all about whether or not these companies can sell online and then maybe double or triple their kind of capacity. A huge move higher for the direct kind of sales digitally on those platforms. But the omni-channel strategies that many of these companies have has been so huge during the pandemic. Nike obviously capitalizing on its brand a lot and being able to sell those products directly to consumers. You're seeing kind of a little bit of a follow through in, in shares of Under Armour, maybe other sporting goods companies like maybe Foot Locker or Dick's Sporting Goods. But the issue for a lot of these companies is that if Nike is doing so much better on its own, selling its own products to people, right. I know I'm a Nike kind of club member, right? They, they pitch directly <laughs> to me. I don't need to go to Dick Sporting Goods anymore. I don't need to go to Foot Locker. So the, they're actually cutting out the middleman in so many fronts. I'm wondering if that trend actually stays intact in the next few years. Sure. And, and they've got the size for it. And Julia, the stock is up 25% this year, 45% uh, in the past calendar year. It's, that's astonishing in this environment. And I think that what Dom is saying really speaks to the fact that COVID has accelerated so many trends. The acceleration of e-commerce, the conversion of consumers to buying directly from Nike, you know, as I found myself doing, if you're going to um, be able to go to Nike.com and maybe not want to just add something else to your Amazon cart. I think that's really accelerating that trend of creating that direct-to-consumer relationship. But then I also think it's really interesting here, and I think this is behind the stocks jump today. We are not getting a lot of guidance for companies going forward. There's still so much uncertainty, and Nike's saying that for fiscal 2021, they expect sales to be up high single digits to low double digits from <laughs> a year earlier. So I think the fact that they have that kind of confidence to have those projections really uh, is notable. That's a great point. And shares, again, are still up by almost 10 percent today. But we can't go without mentioning Dom's favorite topic, <laughs> which is the SPAC. The spree continues, Dom. Sorry, Please, tell yeah. me more. I'm sorry. You know, good RX did it the old-fashioned way, but not these mortgage players. United Wholesale Mortgage, which is the biggest originator of wholesale mortgages, going public through a SPAC with Gore's Holdings. It would be valued north of $16 billion. So it would be, Leslie, the largest SPAC deal on record. And by the way, Rocket Mortgage has not been a great IPO, although Mm -hmm. obviously the housing market is very hot right now. So I'm curious how we should kind of tie all of this together. I think that's a great question. Biggest SPAC reverse merger we've seen uh, in history. And it happens to be a mortgage provider. And I think it's... You know, you you almost get a little bit of a chuckle when you see mortgage and SPAC and a headline and everyone's saying, oh, wow, okay, this is this is 2020. Um, What's interesting about this deal in particular, you're right. This is a year where housing plays in the public markets have seen a tremendous amount of investor interest. Now, going the traditional route for Rocket Mortgage may may not have been uh, the perhaps success story that they envisioned it one day would be. 
UWM took a different route by merging with the SPAC. They only gave up, as you can see, their 6% of their company in order hmm. to do this. Uh, they're going to have almost a billion dollars to put to work to expand uh, as a result of this mer reverse merger. So kind of an interesting structure on that front. Uh, but again, a lot of people are taking out mortgages to buy homes. This company oh, yeah. does much more um, you know, on the origination side uh, with regard to mortgages. And so they've benefited from that. And this was, as they mentioned in an interview this morning, this was just a really quick way for them to access the public markets. Mr. Chu, the final word to you. Two things stood out to the story for me. First of all, this was a de deal valued at $16 billion. The SPAC was not $16 billion in size. Mm. They bought a small chunk of it, about 6% of it, and United Wholesale kind of retains the 94%, so expect maybe secondaries down the line. The other thing, too, about this whole process was I was speaking on Twitter back and forth with bank analyst Chris Whalen, <laughs> and he pointed out that in some securities industry financial markets association data, SIFMA data, Mortgage-backed security issuance over the same time last year is now doubled. Wow. It's huge. That's, wow. How much, that's how hot the mortgage market is. So, yes, those things, two, two things stood out. If there was a time to strike, it was now for an IPO. So why isn't Rocket Mortgage a better stock? I'm just going to leave that question hanging over us <laughs> because we have to leave it there. Julia Borston, Dom Chu, and Leslie Picker, very much appreciate it as always, guys. Thank you. Up next, the presidential election is now just 41 days away, and some pro sports teams are joining efforts to get people registered to vote. We're going to talk to the CEO of the Cavs, the Cleveland Cavaliers, about that, about the bubble, and what next season might look like. Stay here. Welcome back. Yesterday was National Voter Registration Day. And from the NFL to the NBA, pro sports teams across the country are getting involved in the effort to get people to the polls, which in some cases means their arenas. Eric Chemi is here with more for us. Eric? Uh, Kelly, that's right. Tuesday was National Voter Registration Day. And this year, that means teams and athletes from pro and college sports all across America, they're pushing this week to get new voters registered ahead of the November election. In Cleveland yesterday, the three major pro teams held a joint event to encourage citizens to vote. Similar gatherings were held all around the country. The exact numbers are still coming in, but we're told participation in the day was record-setting, with big companies pitching in, too. The NBA tells us at least 22 NBA teams have signed on to allow voting at their arenas. In no other election year have we seen this level of widespread political involvement from the sports industry. MVPs in several sports, including LeBron James, Steph Curry, and Patrick Mahomes, are leading voter initiatives to get out the vote. Golden State Warriors coach Steve Kerr worked with an Arizona phone bank to encourage people to register and vote for Joe Biden. Technically, National Voter Registration Day is a nonpartisan cause, but many famous athletes have made it very clear exactly who they are helping get, get votes for during this week's push. That's something that might turn off some fans who have hoped for sports to avoid politics. Kelly, back to you. All right, Eric, thank you very much. Joining us now to talk more about sports and politics colliding is Len Komorowski. He's the CEO of the Cleveland Cavs. They just wrapped up their own voting event yesterday in partnership with the Cleveland Browns and Indians. It's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Great to be here. So let me just start with, are you guys going to be among those using your arena to stage voting itself? Yes, uh, on November 3rd, we will be a polling location for Ward 3 in Cleveland. So absolutely, our doors will be open as a precinct. Are you getting blowback from people who say that the sport has become too politicized? You know, really, it, it hasn't been the case since we've been very, be very clear to be nonpartisan in our activities. So voting, in fact, the Secretary of State, uh, Frank LaRose, was here yesterday for no National Voter Registration Day. 
He's a Republican. He's been an advocate for voting as well. We've worked in concert with him and his team, along with our county's board of elections. So uh, we had a, a successful event with all three teams involved with the Browns and Indians as well. Uh, we had nearly a thousand people uh, register to vote collectively between uh, online and in person. So it has been a nonpartisan issue and effort. And we've done this in the past as well in terms of registering, registering for voting in terms of past years, too. Well, I know this season is winding down uh, Should within a kind of a week or so here. Uh, the question is now turning to 2021 and when the next season might start. I think Adam Silver himself just hinted that maybe we shouldn't expect it this calendar year. What would you say? Well, yes, as Adam has come on saying, his best guess is that the, the start may not begin until early January. Uh, and really the effort there is how to optimize playing 82 games with the full, ske- with, uh, full schedule with as many fans as possible. And there's an amazing amount of effort of that going on. We're one of the states right now in the NFL. The Browns had uh, 10% capacity for their home game last Thursday. We're starting to see fans coming back in sporting in sports venues in Ohio. And we're optimistic and hopeful that by the time we get around to our season, those numbers will continue to grow. And that's really the, the effort and initiative of our league as well. I, I just read a, a little story. I think it may, might have been ESPN, but they were saying that uh, the bubble uh, and its sort of lack of anything else to do means players have been sleeping more. They're getting better rest. Uh, you know, we've not seen the kind of injuries we're seeing in the football league, even though you guys didn't have a preseason uh, this year really either. Uh, do you think there's going to be some long-term lessons drawn from the bubble that make it I don't know, more like a baseball regional setup or something to kind of give people more of a break? Well, if there's one thing that's happened this year, it's created a, a, just a, a laboratory of innovation all across the board. So the NBA has done a terrific job of executing with the bubble. And, but what you're seeing coming out of it, such as the play-in games for the playoffs, uh, the use of different uh, virtual signage that you've seen as far as the games and events, there's a, there's a whole host of innovation and, and concepts of that nature that are being utilized that previously weren't. And also it creates an opportunity to consider what else may be out there. Heck, even the schedule timing that we're, we're dealing with right now is out of sync of what's been historically the case. So it's pretty exciting time, we think, for our league and for sports in general. The amount of innovation going on in our industry across all leagues internationally is pretty mind-boggling. Yeah. And we're excited about the Do you miss LeBron? Oh, you know, he's a, it's, it's great to watch him uh, and the Lakers. <laughs> he's an amazing, amazing basketball. And, and what he did for uh, our city, uh, you know, everyone will fondly remember forever. Absolutely. It's, it's still strange to me to watch him in that Lakers jersey. But <laughs> such as 2020. <laughs> Len, yes. thank you so much for joining us today. Len no, Kamarowski. He is the president of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Still ahead, if you're in the market for a 275-foot yacht, you're in luck. Billionaire Ron Perelman is putting his up for sale along with a slew of big-ticket items. Why he's in sell-off mode and what could be behind that move is next. Remember, you can always catch us on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. Billionaire Ron Perelman is in sell-off mode, auctioning off hundreds of millions of dollars of art, putting up his yacht, putting up his private jet for sale. Robert Frank is here now to explain. Robert? Kelly, it is the question being asked on Wall Street, the art world, and in debt markets. Why is Ronald Perlman selling? Well, the famous takeover artist has seen his net worth fall by half from 12 to $6 billion in just three years. 
He's selling off companies or stakes in at least half of his portfolio, including AM General, that's the maker of Hyundai's, Scientific Games, and now he's quietly shopping one of his private jets, his yacht, and parts of his massive art collection. That is valued at well over $1 billion. Sotheby's just auctioned off one of his Moreau's for $28 million, and he's got a Richter coming up that could sell for $18 million. Now, bankers say Perlman is facing pressure on loans from Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and several others. Shares of Revlon, that is by far his biggest holding. They've fallen over 70% just this year with over $3 billion in debt. Perlman is saying... This is all a planned downsizing in response to COVID. He says, I've been very public about my intention to reduce leverage, streamline operations, sell some assets, and convert those assets to cash in order to seek new investment opportunities. So Kelly, he says he's raising cash to buy, but right now it looks like he's selling. We'll find out in the coming months just how much he still has to sell. Back to you. Does he have any major debt or loan deadlines coming up? Yeah, he's got a big one in October and November. They just tried to do a debt deal with Revlon that didn't go through. So, yeah, he's got some covenants coming due. So I think by October, November, we'll see if he can meet those and if he's sold enough. All right, Frank, thank you very much. <laughs> Robert, Frank, thank you know you, why? Kelly. I have Frank Holland <laughs> Thanks, already Kelly. on the brain. Thank you, sir. That does it for us. But I will join Frank Holland after this quick break for Power Lunch today. Don't go anywhere. We'll see you in two. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.